According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. And the word of God brings us this morning to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30. Verses 30 and 31 this morning. Hebrews 11 verses 30 and 31. We were discussing during the break and also last hour that we are not a liturgical church and so we don't follow the liturgical calendar through the various seasons and the various holidays. We're also not a topical church where topical sermons are preached from Sunday to Sunday with bouncing to different things. That we are, we teach an expository message through the text of the Word of God from book to book to book to book. And when we finish uh, Hebrews, we've been in Hebrews for a couple of years now, we're going to move on to Genesis. That'll be our next study, and that'll take several years, two or three years to go through Genesis. And so uh, these, w- it, it simplifies a lot of things and uh, takes the pressure off. The preacher doesn't have to pull his hair out and figure out what he's preaching on on Sunday because, uh, well, what was last Sunday? Okay, and we'll take the next passage and we're just continuing right along. Admittedly, though, it makes for some awkward Sunday uh, Christmas messages on, a, on certain occasions when you happen to be in a text that is honestly not a Christmas text. And uh, I don't know that the walls of Jericho tumbling down has ever been preached before on a, on a Christmas message, or Rahab the harlot and, uh, and the spies that she protected. But this is the Christmas message we have today, and we'll thank the Lord for it as He, uh, as he brings us through. Remember God is spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, so in preparation for the study of the word of God, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon his faithfulness to bless our study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning so thankful, rejoicing in your Son, who came to this earth, lived and died, purchased our redemption, Father, rose again ascended to your right hand, is seated on your right hand, Father. What a joy. And we do celebrate, we do thank you for the Christmas season. We get, we get uh, family gatherings and office parties and other, other gatherings with uh, unbelievers even that we have an open door to preach Christ. And I pray that we are able to do so in this coming week, that, uh, that those without hope, without eternal life might, might hear once again, I'm sure they've heard it before, they can hear it again, they can keep on hearing the eternal gospel, Father. And I pray that on this occasion that they would, their soul would be prepared, that they would be humble to receive the word implanted, that they would respond by grace through faith to the free gift. Father, I thank you for this message. I pray for eyes, ears, and a heart to understand. I pray that uh, the walls of Jericho, it's not just a, a Bible story for children. It's not just uh, a, a feature of different songs. There's a powerful doctrine to be related with this, Father, because we all have our own walls that need to come crashing down. And I pray we understand how that happens as we walk by faith and not by sight. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we've really wrapped up the last of our Moses stories a week ago. We've had a whole section here dealing with Moses from uh, verse 23 where he was hidden by his parents. He floated in a basket down the river and he was brought up in Pharaoh's house. But by faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And we have principles of application there. And a lot of these episodes in the life of Moses are very applicable, uh, very directly applicable for us today when we find our own uh, example uh, for our own church age application. 
but looking to the riches uh, and enduring ill treatment rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, this is what we're all called to do as we identify with one another in the body of Christ and as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We also looked at verses 27 and following where he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. This is where he was very blessed to serve in obscurity. He had the limelight in Egypt, but he had obscurity and the blessings of obscurity uh, living in Midian where he had a marvelous father-in-law, Jethro, the high priest of Midian, and a marvelous time. And the wife wasn't all that great, but the father-in-law was marvelous with respect to the fellowship that Moses and Jethro were able to have together in the Word of God. And then by faith he left Egypt, and by faith he kept the Passover, and by faith they passed through the Red Sea. And these are the stories that we've gone through in our recent Sundays here in the book of Hebrews, recognizing that we have our own applications to be made as we learn from the examples of the Old Testament. Well, Moses brought them out, but Moses could not take them in. And uh, taking them out of Egypt was one assignment, but consequences of his own sin meant that Moses forfeited the right to lead them into the land of milk and honey, the land of promise, the land of rest. And so it fell to Joshua to lead them in. Of course, God wasn't let down by that. He wasn't surprised by that. He knew that was going to be the case. And even had Moses not sinned in the way that he did, it still would not have been the will of God for Moses to lead them in. Because Moses, in the idea of his name and being drawn out, Moses was drawn out of the water and Moses brought them through water to bring them out of bondage. All of that typology applied to Moses. But to take Israel into the promised land, to take Israel into the rest required Jesus. And the Old Testament name for Jesus is Joshua. And so Joshua is the type of Christ. Joshua is the one who parted the River Jordan and brought them through on dry ground so that they could begin the conquest. And the conquest started at Jericho. And that's how the author here picks it up. And so when we read verse 31, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down, we have a story that comes to us from Joshua chapter 6. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And then in verse 31, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And so here we have a story that backs up actually four chapters to Joshua chapter 2. And so much of what we're going to deal with today is going to center on the spies and Rahab in chapter 2 and then the deliverance that happened in uh, when the city was destroyed in chapter 6. And that might seem backwards It might seem to mention Jericho and then Rahab is kind of the reverse order, but that's the order that the author of Hebrews gives us here in this. And so that's how we'll we'll be handling it here this morning. And so by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And so this was a test. It was not an instantaneous kind of test. They had They had to do the seven days and each step of the way as they circled the city once in the first six days and then seven times on day seven, people miss that sometimes, but they actually circled around a total of 13 times across those seven days. They blew the trumpet, they gave a shout, and with the blast of the trumpet and with the shout, does that remind you of anything? A shout and a trumpet? Anyway, when they shouted, the walls fell down. And all the walls fell down except one little house, one little section on the wall uh, was preserved. And that, of course, is where 
Rahab was with her family and, uh, and the story here. So what do we learn out of this? And actually the history on this is fascinating. With respect to Jericho and the whole history of Jericho, I think there's doctrine related to the, to the city of Palms as it's known, or the palm tree city that is Jericho. Jericho was the last thing Moses saw as he approached his physical death. And in reality, the, the close of the book of Deuteronomy addresses this because the mountain that he ascended by faith, we talk about going up Mount Pisgah, the mountain he ascended by faith to look out upon what he had forfeited, to look out upon what he would not see in life, he will see, of course, in the resurrection. But the story comes in Deuteronomy 34. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that here this morning, but at least enough where we get the sense of it. If you're not familiar with it, then you can bookmark it and come back to it in your own follow-up study. Twelve verses here make up this chapter, and because he dies in this chapter, we believe Joshua or somebody you know, wrapped it up and tied it together to, uh, to finish the chapter and to finish the book. We know there was subsequent editorial work done in, in later times. But the, the beginning of this, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And that's the key. It's not just any mountain. It's not just anywhere outside the land of promise. It's outside the land of promise at the very point that the conquest is going to begin, at the very point that their faith work of conquering the land will commence. And so the last thing he sees here is Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali and Naphtali in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the land of Judah as far as the western sea. And uh, obviously there was a bit of miracle at work in this to be able to visualize all of this and to see those distances and so forth. Not unlike what Satan did when he tempted Jesus and took him to the high mountain and showed him all the uh, kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there to see it, but not go. And this sadly is much of what we've been dealing with in the earlier chapters of Hebrews, you might recall, because in the early chapters of Hebrews, the admonition was about the promised rest and failing to enter into rest. And what was the case for the majority of the Israelites? With most of them, he was not well pleased. They perished in the wilderness. With most of them, they, like Moses, they could not cross the river. They could not enter into the land uh, flowing with milk and honey, the land of promise, the land of rest. They were able to see it, but not enter. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. And that's important, too, because Israel would have certainly made a shrine, would have made an idol out of it, would have made it a pilgrimage site. And uh, God prevented that from happening by not cluing them in into the place of Moses' burial. In fact, the book of Jude teaches us that there was a bit of a fight at this point. Satan was attempting to do something with the body of Moses, and Michael was, uh, was there to observe, and there's, uh, there's other studies that come into that. And so he gets buried, and no man knows his burial place to this day. And although Moses was 120 years old, when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. 
very unique in all of Scripture that uh, the what's normal for you and I as the years go by and the body decays, uh, such was not the case for Moses, that he was still a, a youthful man even at 120 in uh, to the day of his death. So um, the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, and the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. There is a time to weep, and this is it, but it comes to an end. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so this is the transition, and this is a moment of faith, and this is a moment where the children of Israel might have a weakness in their faith, because they might uh, not be trusting in the Lord, but might be uh, trusting in Moses, and they might be asking, well, now, who's this guy? Why should we expect Joshua will do what Moses couldn't do kind of a thing? And it becomes the opportunity. And uh, we have several prayer requests at the moment that are connected to this very concept here, whereby, for example, a young man has now taken the church in, in Spokane, Washington, and uh, the pastor that had been there for 40 years has retired. And this young man, is he expected to be a clone of the old man that was there for 40 years? Of course not. And that congregation, I'm happy to testify, that congregation is thrilled beyond anything. And they are delighted in, in Jeremy and the, and the Thomas family. And they're just as thrilled as anything to, to carry that forward. So we can pray over that. We can pray over Bellingham where my son's on the pulpit committee. And there's other prayer items, I think, related to uh, concepts such as this. So you have a young man and really how young is Joshua? Because he was over 20 when they crossed the Red Sea. But compared to Moses, he, he's a youth. And, and he is no Moses. We've got to be clear on that. There's nobody that's been like Moses since Moses. And the next verse tells us that in verse 10. Since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And this is one of those editorial comments that gets written in later, you know, down the road, since then, you know, that ever since Moses, we haven't had a prophet like Moses. And that's important because Moses promised that a prophet like me would arise, and that prophet would be the Christ. That prophet would be God in the flesh. And so this editorial comment that closes the book of Deuteronomy is really a reminder that there's been nobody like Moses. And even Samuel, who gets compared to Moses later on, and kind of they, they get served as a tandem, uh, even Samuel, the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, uh, he gets put in a tandem with Moses, but he's not equal to Moses. He's not uh, the prophet that Moses was speaking of. That becomes a separate doctrinal study of its own. So this closes Deuteronomy now and gets us ready for Joshua. And that's what happens with uh, the fall of Jericho. Jericho was the first city for Joshua's conquest in the, of the promised land. Details for this at the end of chapter 5 and the bulk of chapter 6. The king of Jericho was the first of 31 kings that Joshua overthrew. When they get cataloged, when the list gets kept, they get listed name by name by name because our God does things in sequence and he takes names, all right? He keeps a record of all these things. So flip back a few chapters if you would. And so for this, we're going to skip over chapter 2 with the, uh, with the uh, story of Rahab there. The harlot. I find that interesting. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I ponder, I ponder. I've asked older pastors. I've asked everyone I can think of. Why? Is that uh, 
She's, she's called a harlot, which is a much nicer... You get to Revelation 17 and she's a whore. And I don't know why they, they change the language between harlot. It's just, I have no answers. Do you ever lose sleep over these kind of things? All right, Joshua chapter 5. A lot of folks would just start the, the story with chapter 6 and verse 1, but to me, when, when Joshua meets Jesus, this is, uh, this is significant. So backing up to 5.13, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. All right, so now that, 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 that might not be good. <laughs> that might be good. What is this? And Joshua wants to know. This is a pre-incarnate Christophany. It's an appearance of God the Son before the virgin birth. So he's not true. He's not in his human body yet. He's not in the flesh. He's here as the angel of the Lord, the, the captain of the, of the hosts. And so um, Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Which side are you on? And he said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. The host, the Sivayoth. Remember Yahweh Sivayoth, the Lord God of the armies. And here he's going to serve as a captain, which is interesting. Because Joshua, remember, has the command. This is a marvelous condescension, I think, on Jesus' part. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? Joshua knows he's face-to-face with Yahweh. He's face-to-face with God the Son. And remember, we just read at the end of Deuteronomy, since then no prophet has arisen like Moses, whom the Lord knew face-to-face. And now here's Joshua coming face-to-face with the captain of uh, the host of the Lord. So the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Anybody here thinking burning bush? Anyone here thinking, yeah, this is an episode analogous to Moses and the burning bush, and that was his call. It was from the burning bush that Moses was sent into Egypt to start the work of, of, of redemption, to bring Israel out. And here, now there's no burning bush here, there's something better. There's the captain of the Lord of hosts. Still, it's time to remove your sandals and worship. And this is what he does. And so in between... <laughs> I really want to read more. I wish there was more than 15 verses there. <laughs> you know? What else did he say? What did he teach him? What's the content? Did they have communion? What else did they do? We don't know. But Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. And we learn about this, and, and we'll get it in a little bit when we go back to Rahab in chapter 2. Uh, they were terrified. And they felt the best thing to do is to just hide in our city and close up the walls. There were high walls, there were thick walls, and they had a lot of food. They had so much food stored up. They figured they could withstand any siege. That's one of the notable things is that the archaeologists have found within Jericho, not only did they find that the walls fell down, but they found that the, the pots were still full of the grain. And uh, typically when a city is, is falls in siege, it's because they starved to death, they ate everything they could, and then they surrendered when they all starved to death. And uh, how unique is it that archaeology has found this city with the pots all full of grain still? 
they did not withstand a siege because they, they only last, that siege only lasted seven days and uh, before they all died. And so in terms of the rest of this chapter here then, notice the items of faith and the, uh, the following of the leadership of Joshua. And the mechanisms are different. It's not another Red Sea crossing. And it's seven days, not in an instant. Seven days gives people time to wonder, gives people time to doubt. Because nothing happens on day one or day two or day three. And then seriously, we got to do this seven times on the final day? Couldn't we spread it out better? I mean, you can do 13 divided by seven and, you know, just do a couple times a day and, and actually have an easy day on day seven at that point. That's how I would pace it, but I'm just naturally lazy. They are following the Lord's orders on this. And that's the point. We may not understand what he's asking us to do, but we better do what we're told. And and even if we don't understand it, do what you're told. Do what's expected and leave the rest to him. And so this is how they they do this. So um, we got the marching described, the trumpets are described, uh, the priests are involved with this. Joshua tells them, take up the Ark of the Covenant, let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And so they march around. And uh, I'm going to try to save some time on this. I don't want to read the whole chapter to you. But when we get down to verse 21 and then verse 24, you're going to notice this. Let's see here. So verse 20, the people shouted, the priests blew the trumpets, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Every man straight ahead. Now I've always envisioned this kind of as a a great big national game of, of, um, uh, what do you call that when you have the one chair too few and you're playing musical chairs, right? So... I mean, there's, they've got the whole place surrounded so that whenever the wall falls, wherever you are in that spot, instead of rushing in to sit on a chair and laugh at the guy that's stuck out without a chair, but the walls are all falling down, and so wherever you are, you just rush in and start killing everybody. And, uh, and there you have it. Typically, soldiers on the wall, they're, they're trying to defend the weak spots, they're trying to position themselves smartly. If they think it's going to be breached at a certain point, then that's the point they can send reinforcements to. But how do you send reinforcements to a point when the entire thing falls down? You know, you can't send reinforcements everywhere. You're just there face-to-face with the armies of the Lord and, and uh, ready to lose, ready to die, as it's described. So the wall fell down flat, so the people went up into the city. Every man straight ahead, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed everything in the city, man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. That's what they were commanded to do. No pity, no mercy, no civilians, no survivors in the command of the Lord. Of course, Rahab's going to be rescued and we can, uh, I think I reserved these verses for the next slide and we talk about Rahab, but uh, verses 22 and following, they're going to get uh, protected. And... Um, yeah, as it says there, Joshua said to the two men that had spied out the land, go to the harlot's house, bring the woman and all that she has out of there and you, as you have sworn to her. So uh, they're going to do that. I think um, 
Then verse 24, they burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold, articles of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. It was called Carbon. It was under the ban. They couldn't personally profit from any of it because the, the, the temple was going to get it. The Lord was going to get it. It was going to be his plunder. His, uh, he gets the first fruits. He gets the first city. The first city is his. And uh, we know that a man named Achan is going to disobey this. He's going to steal a little cup and try to hide it. But uh, that's, that's a different story. So they plunder, and the plunder belongs to the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. To this day. Anytime you find that phrase, to this day, it's referencing the time of the, the final editorial completion of that book in the canon of Scripture. So when the book of Joshua is, is, is written by Joshua, and then when its final editorial completion is done, possibly after his own death, likely by the prophet Samuel, um, when it says to this day, I think is, we can safely take it to the life of, uh, well, the final author of this text. All right. Those, those are interesting phrases. You can search for those. And anytime you find them in the Bible, they're in the Old Testament, they're quite, quite interesting to consider. So she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. So she is still living when Joshua has his final editorial uh, conclusion. The Holy Spirit inspires the authorship and the editorializing to canonize it. So the last thing Moses saw is the first city for Joshua's conquest. The king of Jericho was the first of 31 kings that Joshua overthrew. And here's the catalog in chapter 12. Joshua chapter 12. I'll just bring it to your attention and show you the highlights. We won't read the whole thing for you this morning. Joshua chapter 12. But I think it's interesting how the king represents the city, represents the people. The king is the people in the sense. And so the people are conquered, the kings are named, and uh, the record is clear. But those are, those are uh, I think, valid principles that we identify with in our Old Testament studies. The patriarchy of the, of, uh, the kings of these uh, city-states, as we would call them today. You say, well, what kind of king was the king of Jericho, right? And if, if you're king of one city, what kind of kingdom is that? It's pretty common in the ancient world. The city-state kingdoms were the norm. The larger kingdoms were, uh, were much more rare, and then full empires are even more rare than that. If you want to contrast the king of Jericho with the pharaoh of Egypt or the, the uh, role of Nebuchadnezzar as the emperor of the Babylonian empire. All right, well, here's a list. Um, Verse 7 says, These are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the sons of Israel defeated beyond the Jordan toward the west, from Baal Gad and the valley of Lebanon, even as far as Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir. And Joshua gave it to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. Joshua was the commander in chief, he's the leader, he's the successor to Moses, so he gets credit. Okay? And that's, again, that's the way it's always, that's the way it is in the Old Testament, the way it, it gets reckoned. Now, um, of course, there's the hill country and the lowland and the Arabah and the slopes and the wilderness and the Negev, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. And uh, all those ites that were slated for destruction, 
Uh, God is not a monster. He's not a moral monster. This is not the Old Testament sanctioning of genocide, that he actually gave them times to repent. He sent them messengers for their repentance. They ignored them. That even while Israel was in bondage in Egypt, God said, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And so the opportunities that they had to repent, to get saved, to turn from their idolatry, Rahab did. Rahab got saved. And so we understand that the opportunity was there. And uh, if you encounter it, uh, there are some good resources available today. Our modern, postmodern culture is uh, pretty crazy about calling the God of the Old Testament a bloodthirsty God of genocide and whatever. So uh, if if you want to do some reading on that, I can recommend some apologetic material, some authors that are very good on, uh, on this question. Anyway, there go the ites. Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. So starting with the king of Jericho, one. Okay? And you're going to see this repeated over and over again. So they conquered Jericho. Great. That's one. Okay? And, and when we walk by faith, that's how we walk. One day at a time. One conquered city at a time. Okay? If you think, uh, if God says, all right, I want you to go conquer those 31 cities, wait a minute. (laughs) One at a time. Each one as He leads you, each one as He takes you there. So we don't get too intimidated each step of the way. King of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. And Ai actually took two attempts because of the sin at Jericho, the hidden sin of Achan there. The, the, uh, but the king of Ai did get killed, and so that's another king. But it's, he doesn't say two, he says one. And the king of Jerusalem, one. It's no longer Melchizedek these days. It's a descendant, a successor, a follow-up king, uh, one that's not a believer like Melchizedek was in Abraham's lifetime. And it doesn't say the king of Jerusalem, three. He's not counting one, two, three. Every time... A city falls, that's one king. They're walking by faith, one by one by one by one. And only at the very end do they look back and uh, the king of Terza won in all 31 kings. Notice that? It's only at the end that they look back and say, wow. Okay? And there's nothing to boast about. It's not bragging. It's not like a uh, it's not a, uh, well, it is. It's a, you know, like at a year-end New Year's Eve message when you look back and you recount each of the Lord's blessings and each of the Lord's assignments. We're going to be doing that next Tuesday night, by the way. On the 31st, we're going to reflect upon um, everything that God has done. And we're going to count our many blessings, name them one by one. And it's one by one by one every time. And at the end of the year, if we want to give a total... Are we unbiblical? No, God does it. <laughs> okay? God does it. It's okay to keep a total because you're not bragging about it. We let him who brag, bra- boast, boast in the Lord. But the king of Jericho was the first of 31 kings that Joshua overthrew. Jericho's destruction came with a prophetic curse for its rebuilding. And I didn't read as far as verse 26 there of chapter 6, but You'll notice, if you flip back there and take a look at it, Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, cursed before the Lord. This is powerful language because they're just now entering into the land of blessing, and they are the blessed people, but they're under the promise of a curse. 
Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. It's the first of the, of the conquest. It's the first of the plunder. It belongs to the Lord. The plunder belongs to him. And he desires for it to stay unbuilt, to remain a ruin. There's a, there's a value in a ruin just sitting there. You can learn from that. <laughs> you can use it to teach. A ruin just sitting there can please the Lord. Of course, human, humanity wants to come along and say, are you kidding me? This is a great tactical position. We can rebuild these walls. This is a marvelous spot for a fortress. It overlooks the crossing of the River Jordan here. It's right at the northern end of the Dead Sea. It's in a great position. Of course we want to put a fortress there. And God says, don't do it. Leave it destroyed. Because whoever builds it is going to lose his firstborn. The man who rises up and builds the city Jericho... It will happen with the loss of his firstborn. And he shall lay his foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So you lose two boys in the raising of, in the rebuilding of this city. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. The promise was uh, uttered there and the fulfillment of it you can read about in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 34. Let's turn there. Maybe this will be a good Christmas message. 1 Kings 16 and verse 34. In 1 Kings 16, you've got probably the worst king Israel uh, ever had, the northern kingdom of Israel. This is during the divided kingdom. So there's a good king in the south in Jerusalem, but then there's an evil idol-worshiping king in the north. And uh, after Omri dies, it becomes Ahab. Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So he outdoes all of his predecessors. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, beyond all of his idolatry, which is Baal worship times two, that he marries Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. So it's a political marriage. He aligns himself with Ethbaal. He marries the Phoenician princess Jezebel. And he went to serve Baal and worshiped him. And all these things that he does as a Baal worshiper and all these things, it's going to it's going to lead to a conflict, of course, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal and these things that happen in his days. But now, uh, in verse 33, we read, Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus, Ahab did, that's a, kind of a sacred fornication pole with the goddess image. Thus, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And it was in his days that Heel, or Heil, the Bethelite built Jericho. And it's, I don't know how significant it is that he's a Bethelite because Ai near Bethel is significant. But in any event, it was Hiel the Bethelite. He built Jericho. He laid its foundation with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub. And uh, the prophecy was fulfilled. Written about in the days of uh, Joshua and fulfilled in uh, the days of Ahab.
Ahab and Jezebel. The rebuilt Jericho was the point of departure for Elijah. Remember uh, the man that didn't die was raptured in a fiery chariot? Point of departure was uh, Jericho. You read about that in 2 Kings chapter 2. I'm giving you a lot of homework this morning. Maybe uh, you'll enjoy reading these chapters or maybe you won't. 2 Kings chapter 2. Just a curiosity. I don't know. It's interesting to me. It came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here please for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. It's the same Bethel that's next to Ai that's not too far from Jericho. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. For they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha. And this is a prophetic school called the sons of the prophets. And they, we don't know a whole lot about them, but they're mentioned a few times. And especially in connection with Elijah and Elisha. And uh, they came out and they said, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? Today's the day. Kind of hard to spring a surprise party on a school of prophets. And uh, Elisha says, yes, I know today is the day. So Elijah said to Elisha, he said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. I thought the Lord sent you to Bethel. You trying to lose me? Trying to throw me off the trail? Trying to discourage me? You think Jericho's a place I'm not going to go? Rebuilt Jericho, it was rebuilt with a curse. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. I find that interesting. And they take an oath, as the Lord lives. That's an easy oath because the Lord always lives. He's the eternal God. But then as you live, is curious to me because Elijah's not going to die. So it's kind of a neat tandem with as the Lord lives and as you live. Just the faith of Elisha here is significant. Again, it's the young man who's following the old man. And he's youthful enough and he's audacious enough to ask for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. (laughs) Wow, the things you ask for when you're young and don't know any better. I don't know, or maybe he didn't know better. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, wait a minute, you mean they started a school here too? This training ministry sure seems to have spread. They approached Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, yes, I know, be still. I keep hearing this, (laughs) okay? Anyway, and the rest of this is curious. So they do depart from there. Uh, stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. He said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Anyway, they're going to do another miracle. They're going to part the water here. A lot of water partings that, besides the Red Sea, that sometimes people forget about. But He takes the mantle, folds it together, strikes the waters. They were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And this is where Elisha wants the double portion of the Spirit. All right, so we have the story there. Rebuilt Jericho was the point of departure for Elijah. It was also the point of capture for Zedekiah. Centuries later, when Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem and the last king is trying to make his escape and he's trying to flee. 
and the easiest. There's a couple of passages you can turn for this, but I thought Jeremiah 52 would be the easiest to turn to because that's the final chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 52. And the city falls and the king tries to sneak out between the walls and run away and hide. On the ninth day of the fourth month, this is a day of grieving. The Jews to this day celebrate this. And, uh, it's called Tishbaav, is a day of sadness, the destruction of the city, the, the end of the temple. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And the city was broken into, and the men of war fled and went forth from the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Uh, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. They went by way of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. There's the reference. And all his army was scattered from him. And they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah. It's where his headquarters was set up in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. And the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also slaughtered all the princes of Judah in Riblah. The ones he didn't slaughter were the ones that had been actually taken hostage years before. God in his grace took Daniel and those uh, boys in 605 BC, sent them as hostages to Babylon so that they could serve him there, preparing the way long before the city was conquered. They'd have been killed if they'd have still been, uh, still been here. And so um, he, then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah And the king of Babylon bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon and put him in prison until the day of his death. I love that. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? Okay, so we have different aesthetics. We we call different things beautiful. But Zedekiah had mocked Scripture. Zedekiah had mocked doctrine because two prophecies had been made one that said he would never see Babylon. And another prophecy said he would die in Babylon. And Zedekiah mocked the living God for being a liar or being confused or giving contradictory messages. And there's no contradictory messages. He never saw Babylon because his eyes were gouged out at Riblah. But he did die in Babylon. He spent the rest of his life in chains. And so it is a beautiful text because it reconciles for us what would appear to be contradictory prophecies. But there are no contradictory prophecies. We have prophecies of Jesus that talk about Bethlehem Ephrathah. Here's my Christmas message. Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you will go forth one who's going forth for from eternity. Too small to be counted among the clans of Judah. And so the prophet Micah tells us about Bethlehem Ephrathah. But the prophet Hosea tells us, out of Egypt I will call my son. So that seems like a contradiction. Bethlehem's not in Egypt. Or the prophet Isaiah says, Galilee of the Gentiles. Naphtali, by way of the sea, Galilee of the Gentiles. So what am I stuck with? I got the prophet Isaiah saying Galilee. I got the prophet Hosea saying Egypt. I got the prophet Micah saying saying, uh, Bethlehem. When the Messiah comes, which prophet do I agree with? Which prophet is right? 
And if I say that one has it right and I say the other two have it wrong, I don't understand Scripture. All three prophets are correct. Bethlehem is correct. Egypt is correct because of the escape to Egypt and the return after the death of Herod. And uh, of course Galilee is correct. Does a prophet arise in Galilee? Of course a prophet arises in Galilee. The prophet likened to Moses. And so <laughs> these studies, things like Jericho, this detail stuff, we, 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 we hit a, a concept like by faith the walls of Jericho fell and we realize how much doctrine is there in one single verse? The whole Bible is in one single verse because of how we compare Scripture to Scripture. It's called rightly dividing the word of truth. And this is the value of teaching systematically. This is the value of verse by verse. This is the value of an expository approach to the Word of God. And not just a topical, sermonic, Sunday to Sunday, whatever mood strikes the preacher's fancy. Um, You know, this week is repentance, next week is love, next week going to be whatever. And and then the, the, the pastor runs out of ideas, he runs out of creativity. I had a guy ask me, how do you choose what you preach on from week to week? I said, well, my job is easy because our tradition is systematic. But otherwise, yeah, if you're not a, how do you keep coming up with ideas and what, what do you get to next? And what do you get to, let's do one on water skiing or let's do, you know, I mean, what do you preach on? And honestly, we were discussing this too. To me, this is why Christmas hymn or Christmas sermons are so popular and Easter sermons and because it's an easy out. It is a, it's like a day off for a preacher. I mean, you can preach another Christmas sermon. You've done 50 of them. You can do another one. And it's like taking a day off. Maybe. All right. So there's Jericho. And inside Jericho was a harlot. Not a whore, a harlot. Very consistent about that. She's a harlot. Actually, not quite so, uh, not quite so consistent because Josephus tried to clean it up. And when Josephus was writing his Antiquities of the Jews and giving the background history for the, for the Roman audience, he wrote this, but he called her an innkeeper. And kind of, yeah, tried to adjust some, some of the, the things here. All right. So by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish, along with those who were disobedient, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So theologically, the impact on this and what the author of Hebrews is stressing is that Rahab operated on a faith basis, that she had a faith ministry despite her occupation, despite her secular work. All right. And, and, and don't put words in there. Don't say the former harlot or the one who used to be a harlot before she got saved or any of that. Again, that's like, you're just when you do that, you're just being like Josephus trying to clean something up. Um, and she was not disobedient. She separated herself from the disobedient Jericho people, the Jerichoites or whatever they call themselves, that they were disobedient. Now that phrase too, let me ask you this. What were they disobedient about? What did they disobey? Yeah, the opportunity they had been given during Israel's sojourn in Egypt, the repentance commands that they had been given, they were disobedient. When, when you reject the gospel, the Bible says you're disobedient. 
God wants you to be saved. If you don't get saved, you're disobeying. So, how can you accuse God of being a genocidal monster when He preached repentance to them, He preached good news to them, He sent messengers to them, and at least in Rahab's case, she heard it and responded by faith. Whereas the rest of Jericho remained disobedient. She did not perish along with those who were disobedient. After she had welcomed the spies in peace. So this is her faith. So her survival was a faith application, but also her welcoming of the spies was a faith application. Welcoming the spies in peace. Hiding them on her roof. And so this is where we get the the Joshua chapter 2 story. You can turn back there to Joshua chapter 2. All right. Joshua judges Ruth. Here we go. Joshua, chapter 2. So Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies. That, that to me, just cracks me up. Because Joshua used to be a spy. He was one of two faithful spies. When there were 12 that were sent. And so to me, this is genius on Joshua's part. He's not sending 12 spies into the... (laughs) He's going to send two. He's going to send men of faith. And we don't know their names. There's tradition about one of them, but we don't know their names. And um, sent two men of spies secretly from Shittim, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. Because that's the first point of contact. That's going to be the first conquest. So they've got to pay more attention to that than anything else. So they went and came to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. In uh, Hebrew, she's, this is Zonah. In Greek, it's porne, and you just can't rewrite it because it is what it is. And, uh, and this is her house. And so it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So the spy mission is betrayed from day one. How far do they get before the king of Jericho finds out, hey, we got two spies and uh, I wish there was, there was more detail here than, than we don't you know, maybe need to know, but we want to know. So the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab. <laughs> so he knows there's two spies and he knows where to find them. Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. And uh, so you talk about walking by faith and everything goes wrong from step one. You know, I mean, think about it. How many believers think that they're obeying God until the first thing goes wrong and they think, oh, well, the whole thing's ruined. Give up now. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So why does she hide them? Does she know the jig is up to? Hebrews says she welcomed them by faith. She welcomed them in peace. And the best thing she could do for these two spies is not to bring her into the prostitute's house and any of that. She doesn't send them to a room with, with the girls. She puts them on the roof and hides them under the, the uh, stalk, uh, the, the flax that's hidden on the roof. She brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax. And this is long before the king sends the soldiers, long before uh, she needed to or had to or knew there was a problem or anything else. In other words, hiding the spies was not the backup plan. It's the first thing she did. 
by faith. And um, anyway, the, uh, so the king, back, let me back up to verse 3. I'm getting ahead of myself here. The woman had taken the two men, hidden them, and said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. So, yeah, they were here. I didn't know there were spies. You know, I don't know who they were. We get a lot of men to come through here. Believable, right? I mean, doesn't it sound like a believable lie? She's lying, you know. This is a lie. The Bible says, Thou shalt not lie. But she's lying and gets put in the Hall of Fame of Faith. All right. So uh, I didn't know where they were from, but it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. And so they take off. They're, they think they're hot on the trail, and off they go. The men pursued them on the road to, to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. I mean, it's the natural way they're going to escape because the army is over there on the other side of the Jordan River. So that's the, way, the direction they chase them. But before, uh, and the rest of this is powerful, it testifies to her faith and her understanding of doctrine. Verse 8 says, Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the man, I know that Yahweh, how does she know Yahweh? I know Yahweh has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. All of the Jerichoites are terrified. The inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed. Sihon and Og, they were remnants of Nephilim. They were tall, statured, hybrid, half, you know, giant men. And Israel killed them. The king of Jericho is not looking forward to this battle. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is a ton of theology there with heaven above and earth belief. And uh, the Phoenician gods or the Canaanite gods, they, uh, they couldn't handle this. They had a different God for the God above and a different God for the God beneath and a different God for the God of the underworld and a different God for the God of the sea. But they're face to face with Yahweh who's supreme over everything. He's the God of heaven and earth, creator of heaven and earth, the one true God. And she has an amazing testimony here on this. So she says, please swear to me by the Lord since I have dealt kindly with you that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. She saves herself and her father's household. My father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And so the spies promised this. She let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall. She was living on the wall. And uh, the spies give her this cord and say, you need to tie this. Here's another question I have. I lose sleep over these kind of things. Um, she has to tie this scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather yourself into the house, your father, your mother, and your brother, all your father's household, So, because that's going to be the sign. 
And if she ties the, the scarlet cord there, it's like the, the blood on the lintel on the doorpost for Passover. It's her testimony of faith. And, and my question is, well, now, if all the walls fell down, except that one little spot where her house was, <laughs> okay, the one little segment of the wall that didn't fall down, that one little spot where her house was, did the spies really need that little red cord to say, hey, I think that's Rahab's place? No, Rahab's place is the one spot on the wall that didn't fall down. Please go get her out of there and let's keep her safe. But the, the scarlet cord was her act of faith. So when we're asked to give acts of faith, don't think that, well, it's insignificant, it doesn't matter, nothing's going to happen from it anyway. It's expected for you to do what you're told, walk by faith, and if you think it's not going to produce anything, that's not your department. Anyway, I'm running out of time. Rahab the harlot joins the midwives in Egypt and even Jesus himself for speaking factually untrue words without committing personal sin. For speaking untrue words, factually untrue words, without committing personal sin. Now, can I explain it? Do I understand it? I'll, tell you, I'll give you the best way I can sort it out, but they lied. The midwives of Egypt were told to kill the baby boys, and they told Pharaoh, uh, sorry, but uh, those women, they just birth their kids so fast, we don't even get there in time. They're not wimps like you Egyptian women where the midwife has tons of time to get there. These, these Hebrew women, boy, they just, they just birth those kids right out of there faster than anything, and we, we don't even get there in time. With the total lie on the part of the two midwives before Pharaoh. And they're praised as women of faith. And they were liars. Rahab, lying. And she ends up in Hebrews chapter 11. Jesus said things that are factually untrue. But he doesn't lie and he doesn't sin. Jesus never sins. Relax. I can, you know, this, this is the kind of message to get people vibrating. Jesus, he can make statements under the assumption of what he thinks is true. Did you not know I had to be about my father's business? But he learns that his parents had other ideas. They didn't know. He thought they knew, but they didn't. So he was wrong. He was incorrect. Doesn't mean he sinned. All right, we can relax about that. And even with the rich young ruler, there's a lot of, typically people will turn to Luke 10 or will turn to John 7, and they say, Jesus told a lie. In John 7 and verse 8, his brothers said, hey, let's go to Jerusalem, make a big splash at the feast. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going. You guys go. And in John 7 and verse 8, he says, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And there's a lot of skeptics and folks that say, Jesus just told a lie. Because having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. And so did he lie or did he change his mind or did, did he mean all along to deceive them? What's he doing here? Well, it's not a lie. And he, or even if it is a lie, it's not a sin. It's the Father's will for him to do this in this manner. Likewise, the rich young ruler in chapter um, 10, Luke chapter 10. I don't know if this ever bothers you or not, but in Luke chapter 10, this guy thinks he's earned heaven. 
You ever meet anybody that thinks they've earned heaven? Wow, I'm impressed because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you seem to think you've overcome that somehow. And in Luke 10, verse 28, well, see, the lawyer in verse 25 stands up to test him and says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? He answers a question with a question and gets it from the lawyer's own mouth. And um, he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's, that's a lie. How, how can that be true? Can that lawyer love the Lord God and love his neighbor enough his entire life and create his own salvation, create his own eternal life? No way. No. So Jesus is uttering factually incorrect words, but he's doing so as a teaching mechanism. This is like for the sake of argument. If you accept a given, you accept a premise, and you give it back to the person to think it through for himself which he does and he's immediately not satisfied because now he wants to say, well, who's my neighbor? (laughs) Right? What do you mean by this? Wait a minute. And so Jesus in his teaching style, in his technique here, is producing an edifying result here whereby the man is thinking things through. But when he says to him, do this and you will live, that's a lie. Or at worst, it's mockery because what human can do this? You tell me, well, it's not a lie. It's true. If he's sinless and perfect, he can win eternal life. So it's not a lie. It's true, but it's a mockery because what human could do that? What sinful woman born in Adam can do that? Or a sinful person born of a woman in Adam could do that? Anyway, Rahab clearly lied and she's in the hall of fame of faith. You know, what's interesting And so morally, people have, I'm I'm almost out of time, this is terrible. Morally, different scholars have done this. And so they, they create the sense that, well, to save lives, because thou shalt not murder, to save lives, if she doesn't lie, then she's responsible for, for their death. The midwives, if they don't lie, how can they kill the babies? God says don't murder. So they can't kill the babies. And if they lie about it, is that, is that, I mean, yeah, it's a sin, but is it a, it's a better sin than murdering in it? So they kind of create a philosophical idea of a lesser of two evils. They create a philosophical acceptance that, well, you can tell a lie for the sake of a higher obedience, obeying God by saving lives. Some philosophers have accepted that. Other philosophers say, no, there's weakness in that too. We don't go with the lesser of two evils. Uh, you still do the, right, you do the right thing in the right way at all times, and, and God works it out. So the philosophers can debate that back and forth. Um, in, in military tactical, it's not wrong to deceive the enemy. It's not wrong to let them think that you're going to attack here when instead the real attack is coming here. That's not a lie. It's just like killing the soldiers in battle is not murder. In espionage, deceiving the, the, the king of the city you're about to destroy is not a lie. It's a tactical espionage organiza- uh, operation in service to 
the secular authority. See, because the king wields the sword for a reason. That's why capital punishment is not murder. All right. Anyway, there's more of that. I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm just out of time. We'll have to, uh, let me just close with this. You know what else? Rahab doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament except in genealogy studies. In addition to the testimony of Hebrews 11, we have the testimony of Matthew chapter 1, which tells us that Rahab is in the line of Christ. Who knew? Who knew that in the destruction of Jericho, you had to get a particular harlot out of there because she's in the line of Christ. You can't put her to death. That would really be a bummer. (laughs) Okay. So read Matthew chapter 1 and you'll find that uh, she marries Salmon. And there's a legend, I can't find it. Salmon was one of the spies, maybe. I can't prove it. But uh, whether he was a spy or not, she married a, a man from Judah named Salmon and became the mother of Boaz. We know Boaz because of the book of Ruth. Anyway, genealogy of Jesus. Uh, his brother James mentions Rahab in James chapter 2. Uh, the book of Ruth mentions her because she's the mother of Boaz, the mother-in-law of Ruth, the grandmother of Obed. So she's the grandmother of David's grandfather. It's kind of important when you do the homework. So take Matthew 1.5, compare it to Ruth 4, and you'll see the combined genealogy in the list there. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your son. Thank you, Father, for being so far ahead of us. <laughs> so far ahead of us. How could we even imagine such a plan from Alpha to Omega and all of the humans and all of the angels and all of the volitional decisions and your sovereignty is in charge of everything. We thank you for it, Father. We thank you for the faith that's expressed, even when it's not understood, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we think it's not going to be productive. Nevertheless, it's what you call us to do, and so we do it. We thank you for it, Father. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen.